This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Good day, sir. It is, isn't it? <laughs> so this is a cool one. We got Mike Bridger um, coming on. He's a regional biologist um, for Flynn Row, and actually, in, he's Northeast Resource Management and Major Projects is his um, purview now, and he, he's basically heavily involved in the uh, Caribou Recovery Program. And um, really interesting podcast with Mike. Oh yeah, I've known Mike for a bunch of years as of you and uh, before he was even involved with government and uh, yeah, he's always fascinating to talk to and always learn something and yeah, this is a, a great one. We talk about everything from uh, sheep to caribou to wolves and everything in between. So yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed this podcast. I'm glad we finally were able to get the approval from government to put it together. Yeah, so two emotive issues that we jumped into, caribou recovery and predator management. Uh, so that's obviously uh, a hot topic um, that creates a lot of controversy. And really our Act Now campaign was kind of around that, you know, basing, you know, wildlife decisions on science and just really advocating for that to the government. So kind of ties in with that. And um, and then also we talk about this illegal sheep harvest in 2021 and the the rash there. So Mike's got some pretty alarming figures for us. A uh, little disturbing, to be honest with you, but um, there's a really strong message and some things that we've learned from it, and we've learned about what we need to do better collectively. Well, I'll be blunt; it's a lot disturbing, right? Hearing some of those those trends that uh, that he gets into, it's. Every single one of them is preventable, right? And how do we stop that? And as a society, we're we're digging into what we can do from from our side for an educational piece. But yeah, that's that's the disappointing part to me is uh, every one of those sheep that was taken illegally, uh, the the person that pulled the trigger thought what they were doing was legal. So how do we change that? Yeah, and Mike gives some really good tips there on on his thoughts around it. Uh, so I want to ask our listeners. Uh, we, you know, we talked about as a society, society, we have to do a better job, and you know, we've always used our show as that catalyst where you know you sit down, you get to put your hands on sheep. We get a regional bio in there or a scientist of some sort talking about um, you know aging and the importance of it, and then um, also beyond that, you know, just you know, selecting a, a mature ram and what that looks like instead of, you know, as Mike points out, just aging on annuli alone is is a very challenging, very daunting thing. And um, and that's where some of these people have made mistakes. It was, they aged a sheep, they thought it was, it wasn't full curl, thought it was eight, 
and it was seven or less and they ended up pulling the trigger on something that wasn't legal so um i'd like to hear from our listeners would you guys be interested in us doing a seminar in british columbia um, send us an email communications at wildsheepsociety.com and let us know um you know what what you'd like to see i'm thinking we should be doing something in the summer june or july and get together um, we could do it up in Kamloops. We could do it in the lower mainland, uh, kind of where the most demand is and get people out so they can get their hands on some sheep, uh, horns, do some aging and hear from the experts on how to age sheep um, so that we get some educational pieces out there. The society in itself, we're working on a, in, internally, we're working on a um, a program. Basically, it's web-based um, to educate you on uh, horn aging and selecting mature rams. Um it is an internal process. It, there's a lot of work that, as you can imagine, that's going to to this. Jesse Bone, one of our directors, he's the lead on it. He's doing a fantastic job, but it's it's a slow process. We're hoping to have a preliminary uh, course out prior to this season, but it'll be very rudimentary at this point, and uh, we'll just continue to build on it so we can have a more inf- making more informed decisions in the field and try and get away from this illegal harvest. Yeah, it's education, education, education. Right, uh, sheep are tough. They, they really are. They're, they're not like counting points on a deer, but yeah, like, like I've told you many times with our chats, I would never venture into the field with the intent of pulling my trigger, uh, without spending hours and hours and hours, uh, checking legalities or having an experienced sheep hunter like yourself or Mike or any of the others that I talk to say, you know what? This one looks legal to me, but you have to make that call yourself and just, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. Educate. Well, that's, that's just it. You know, interesting this year, I, you know, we let a beautiful Ram walk away. I'm sure he was absolutely legal, but just, you know, the circumstances we, we weren't sure how to let him walk. And I have no doubt that somebody probably did harvest them this year that was able to get closer, make a better assessment conditions were more conducive but you know you just you know you do have to let them walk is is the challenge even on my first ram it was a a really good ram well past his nose and mike goes i think he's legal it wasn't like it was clearly legal but it wasn't like mike's like don't wasn't shoot 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 it was like i think he's legal but figure it out for yourself and you know and very obvious at what he was uh, on age and horn length but you know it's one of those things where it's just a such a tough thing and and uh, we need to do a better job and as mike yeah. said if we don't start doing a better job as sheep hunters in bc it, the regulations are going to change they, this is not sustainable so we have to do a better job in the in the future yeah you can't take that bullet back once you've sent it right yeah absolutely no catch and release on stone sheep so or sheep uh, any sheep so um, okay, wild sheep raffles. Get your tickets. Um, we're you know we, we need a little bit of help there. We actually were further ahead at this point last year. We are going to sell out on a couple of them for sure. They're well on their way. Uh, but uh, if you're thinking about getting tickets, get out there, buy them. Uh, again, all the money from these uh, tickets go to conservation projects in BC. So you're you're not only getting a chance for a, a kick-ass hunt, but you're also supporting conservation. So it's a win-win. You can't go wrong with that. Uh, we have a life member raffle that's live now. So if you're a life member, you can go over, buy a ticket. They're a hundred bucks and it's, you get a, um, a Yeti mug out of the deal with our logo on it. And you get your name in for a uh, hunt with Silver Sage Outfitters on a raffle. There's only 200 tickets. Odds are insane. 
Now there's we got two raffles going on right now around Antelope, so it's confusing. We got our WSR. They're a ten dollar ticket, but the odds uh, compared to a hundred dollar ticket, which have kick ass odds. So um, you know, kind of two opportunities there. And with this hundred dollar ticket, you're also getting the Yeti mug. So pretty cool. Um, great support from Yeti on that. Thanks to Silver Sage Outfitters, and it's a, just a great hunt. And you're going to go uh, chase pronghorns in southern Alberta. Yeah, life membership has its privileges, as they say, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, our life members are the lifeblood of this organization. We want to recognize you guys and gals that are supporting us there. So great opportunity if you're interested in uh, in the raffle. Uh, congratulations, Taylor. Uh, Taylor was the winner of our uh, last uh, podcast. Uh, what was the question? It was around cougars and uh, Siobhan's favorite uh, name for cougars, So, uh, which was Mountain Screamer. Yep, Mountain Screamer. Yeah, yeah cool. Which was so, a name I'd never, I'd never heard that name before for a cougar. I don't, I don't think I have either. I probably did, but uh, anyway, congratulations, Taylor. We're sending your stuff out. Thanks for interacting with us there. Um, what else we got, Steve? Anything else we need to announce today? No, I don't think so. Just truly loving the support you guys are showing us. Uh, leaving uh, likes and reviews wherever you podcast, and that that helps the listenership grow and gets us into. Uh, more audiences yeah and actually now that we say that we have a likes and shares thing going on social media right now um so uh help us out get over there like and share um you can see the rules on our uh, social media pages so we need all three platforms we need um to the wild sheep society bc platform the one campfire platform and talk is sheep platform we have talk is sheep on i think it's only on instagram we don't have anything on facebook yeah. so uh get over there like and share um, and, uh, we're giving away a Yeti cooler, a Yeti 65 and a, um, Sitka Aerolite. That's right. Sitka Aerolite. And then some WSSBC swag, right? Yeah. So three chances to win. Once we hit 10,000 on wild sheep and one campfire, what, whatever that number was and talk is sheep, whatever those numbers are. Once we hit those targets, we're going to give away those things. So the first one, we'll, we'll do a random draw. If you like and share your name, will go in and uh chance to win so pretty cool opportunity yep. um great support from yeti and sitka on that and uh yeah episode 61 right buddy 61 already hey mike bridger enjoy the show if you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary you would see a picture of our friend omer from precision optics a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, BC. So this was a journey in itself, uh, you know, with government, we have to get these approvals. So we've been trying to have you on the show for literally months here. And uh, so thanks to you for your patience and thanks to your, you know, the media side of the government for working with us. So we really appreciate you coming on the show and we're really, you know, uh, your messaging is really important and just glad we can connect today. Yeah, right on. Yeah, I apologize for all the, the hoops you have to jump through to get us government folk on the podcast, but uh, glad glad we're, we got it done and we're here today. No, absolutely. And yeah, we're, we're super grateful that uh, that they let uh, you talk to us and, uh, you know, you're doing great work up there in the north. So it's really nice to catch up and lots of topics, you know, before we started recording here, we 
you know, we sort of talked about some of the big, you know, hot topic items in BC right now. And there's, there's lots to go around. And just in the sheep world, um, we've got four or five, you know, pretty serious things we need to, to tackle short term, not to mention what's going on with all the other work that's out there. So. Yeah, no shortage of, uh, you know, conservation topics these days, whether it be sheep or caribou or what have you, there's uh, plenty to discuss. Absolutely. So anyway, before we get to that, let's let's talk about your fall. Do you get out and uh, chase some sheep around? I see a beautiful stone, a goat on your wall behind you there. So um, what did your fall look like for Mike Bridger? Oh, it was great. I mean, one of uh, the perks of, you know, my job is that I can generally take a fair bit of time off in the fall. So, um, yeah, we did our, our annual stone sheep hunt. Um, we've been getting out every year doing that and had a yeah, beautiful trip this year. Um, the weather was great. We saw a good number of sheep, um, some nice rams, some up-and-comers, uh, a few legal sheep that just weren't quite what we were looking for. And uh, then, yeah, elk season, that's sort of my favorite. After you know, after the sheep hunt in September, I spent a lot of time chasing the elk. Love that. Had a great year. Um, we're really lucky up here in the Peace region to have some phenomenal elk populations and elk hunting opportunities. And then, uh, yeah, I really, I uh, devoted a lot of time to chasing whitetails up here in November. Again, like we've got some pretty phenomenal opportunity to hunt big, big, old, smart whitetails up here in the Peace and had a lot of fun doing that. Learned a lot this year that I can hopefully apply to next year. And uh, no, it was a great fall. Yeah. I'm looking forward to next year already. Yeah, I remember when you lived in Prince, you used to do pretty good around here for, for elk. You used to see some pictures, and uh, it was always the secret locations. Now that you're gone, maybe you should message me. With <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm sure you know them all by now, Steve. Yeah, the uh, the elk hunting, yeah, in my later years in Prince George was starting to get starting to get better. I'm sure it's, it's got even better since then. Very cool. So, Mike, our history goes back to the sheep world and and um you know i met you i think it was in Kelowna the first year and uh it was the you know johnny and marsh and a bunch of us um just had a great time and talking about sheep and uh always just love hearing your stories and so but actually you know i've kind of we stayed in touch over the years and we've done lots of work with you and you've been very involved in the sheep world but you know what were the early beginnings like where did you come from and where did you know you're a young guy in the biology in the you know, the VC biology world and the science world and working for the government. But where did this interest come from? How did that come about? Yeah, good question. Well, I, um, I actually, my family moved out from Northern Ontario when I was fairly young, moved to BC. And so I grew up in the Kootenays, um, spent a lot of time outdoors then, had some really good mentors, you know, whether it be that my dad or some other uh, hunting mentors that got me out lots hunting and fishing. So that passion, um, took off at a pretty young age. And then um, I, I, I started to pursue that in post-secondary education um, in Prince George at the University of Northern British Columbia, started taking the, the fish and wildlife management program there. Um, while I was doing that, I was also working as a hunting guide sort of in, in the off season of school and uh, had a lot of unbelievable experiences doing that. I still miss that to this day. Um, but I finished, yeah, finished a bachelor's of science in, in the fish and wildlife programs there and then um, decided, had an opportunity to carry on and do a master's in, uh, degree as well in, in wildlife biology and 
And so, yeah, by then the the seed was firmly planted that I, I wanted to work in the, the wildlife biology realm and um, definitely had interest in getting on with government, you know, because that's, that's really where, the, you know, the decisions are being made and I wanted to be part of that. And uh, so, yeah, luckily when my master's was finishing up, I had an opportunity uh, to come up here to Fort St. John as a fish and wildlife biologist. And uh, I've been here for almost seven years now. Uh, time flies. Like, I still feel like I'm fairly early in my career. Uh, but yeah, seven years has gone by and my my job's progressed a little bit. I went from a fish and wildlife biologist to sort of a regional wildlife biologist that, you know, you'd be familiar with. And then in the, the last few years, I've, I've actually, I'm working now specifically for the caribou recovery program for the province. And so my focus these days is a bit more on on caribou and and predator prey dynamics, but I still um, I still have some roles and responsibilities on some other species up here in the northeast, like sheep, um, moose, things like that. Right on, man. Well, we appreciate everything that you've done in the, in the sheep world, and you've done a great job of bringing a lot of knowledge to our community and getting us to understand things better. Um, but it seems, I guess, topical, and you know, we've kind of. Uh, Steve and I have both been communicating with you through this engagement process around caribou and, and you've been involved in that project. Um, do, you, do you maybe want to just give us an overview of the project itself, the, the caribou recovery project, uh, kind of soup to nuts. And I know, you know, this project has been ongoing for a number of years and just kind of where we're at today with the project. And then there'll be a bunch of questions that will come from that, obviously. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's yeah, a multifaceted program. There's a lot going on, um, whether that be working on the habitat, protection, restoration side of things, recreation management, predator management is a big one that is, of course, topical these days and probably of interest to your listeners. Um, <clears throat> we just went through a pretty lengthy engagement process to continue our predator management actions uh, to support caribou recovery. So I, I know you guys have talked about that on this podcast. You guys had a great um, episode there with, with Joe Appel around that whole um, engagement process on the continuation of, of wolf and cougar reduction in the province. So that's that's a big one um, that I've, I've spent quite a bit of time on. Um, we've had success with these programs. Um, you know, we look at that predator reduction work as sort of a short-term tool that we are using to help get these caribou populations back on track, you know, to stabilize them or to get them increasing while we address some of these bigger picture issues uh, namely the habitat condition, um, trying our best to protect habitat and to restore habitat. That's really going to be the key to the long-term success of caribou in this province, but it's, it's super challenging. Um, there's massive trade-offs to consider when, when recovering caribou. It's probably the most complex conservation challenge we're dealing with, certainly in BC, probably in North America right now. Uh, the trade-offs between recovering a species at risk and and you know, economies on the line, jobs on the line. It's uh, it's very multifaceted and, and very challenging. Yeah, definitely tough to get that balance right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's easy just to say, well, protect all the habitat, but I mean, you're talking about people's jobs and livelihoods on the line. It's uh, it's it's a wicked problem for sure. So, Mike, um, just one of the things. So we talked about you mentioned species at risk. So. Just for our listeners, and I try to get my brain around this. So I think under COSIWIC designation, it, they're declared uh, endangered and then 
federally the federal governments consider them species at risk are we correct in that terminology and what is what are the consequences of those designations because i know federally there are consequences for that species at risk designation yeah there's a few different designations for the different ecotypes of caribou in the province so um but yeah, you're right. When if uh, if a species becomes federally listed as endangered, they can pull some pretty uh, hard levers um, to help protect those species. Um, so there's agreements between the province and and the Canada, the federal government, right now to let the province do their best, uh, do our best to try to protect those caribou without having to go to some pretty extreme measures that would be enforced by the federal government. So. Um, that's kind of the stage where we're at. Some of these caribou are a special concern. Some are threatened. Um, and I, I, as of right now, I don't believe any are actually listed uh, as endangered. But uh, definitely um, some of them are on the brink of that designation. Okay. So now let's let's talk about, I guess, the recovery process. So I know you've been heavily involved with the predator-prey part of it and um, very... Uh, you know, on the ground there. So we've seen actually some pretty significant recovery in areas where there has been some um, predator reduction. Can you talk a little bit about those numbers? I've seen some like 60, 70% herd recoveries. The granted, they're quite small herds, but mm. we're seeing some pretty significant impacts there that speak to, I guess, let's talk to the positives of, of this reduction program that you guys are working on. Sure. Yeah. So where we've got some pretty good data sets, you know, where we've been doing this work for seven to eight years now. Uh, we've seen some pretty phenomenal results come out of the wolf reduction work. And furthermore, when that wolf reduction is paired with other short-term actions, whether that be maternal penning, like the Clinziza caribou herd, or supplemental feeding, like the Kennedy siding herd, um, we've seen strong results. I mean, some of these herds were declining at rates of 10 to 15% each year. Um, and with the wolf, wolf reduction and, and sometimes in combination with these other measures, um, we've now seen them increasing at rates of 10 to 15% each year. So, we, you know, in that sense, we've had almost a 30-point swing in the population trajectory. Um, so, yeah, those herds have, have doubled, I think, since we've started um, wolf reduction back in 2015. Those south, I'm talking about the South Peace area, uh, um, where we've got three different caribou herds. I believe those herds have, have essentially tripled at this point. Um, it's a pretty remarkable effort. Uh, lots of people involved, First Nations have taken a lot of ownership in, in recovering the caribou in the South Peace. Uh, we've got agreements around habitat protection. Um, there's new recreation management uh, that has been implemented. So there's a lot going on and yeah, they're trending the right way. Uh, we just need to keep it going that way and, and do our best to to address the habitat pieces. Cool. So, and I want to jump into the habitat stuff around caribou too shortly, but um, before we go there, um, you know, we get some, you know, there's a lot of push. Oh, okay. Well, actually, before we go there, what is the current status of, uh, of the program of the predator reduction program in Northern BC? So we know that there's, there was the outstanding court case that wouldn't involved, um, uh, was a pack wild, I guess, brought the case forward, Rebecca Bradder. So there was that court case. Uh, there was engagement survey. Um, we also had a letter from um, the uh, United uh, Chiefs of British Columbia. 
Um, so there was, there's been some adversity around this program and some controversy. So where are we at with the program and, and how are we managing these other sort of restrictions or, or I guess, arguments against the program itself? Yeah, yeah, good question. So uh, there, the the court case is still, uh, I guess, not settled. So they ha the days in court are finished and the, the judge has not um, made a decision at this point. Uh, we carried on with our our plans to continue our, our work. So uh, yeah, as, as you probably saw this year, we kind of, we came to the end of our initial approvals for these programs. So we had to seek reapproval. And um, part of that process was doing a very uh, in-depth consultation with all of the nations that would be affected or overlapping in these areas. So we consulted with, I believe, 45 First Nations. Uh, we did targeted uh, stakeholder engagement. So anyone who had a, like an overlapping tenure, say a trapper guide outfitter that overlapped with these um, predator management areas, we engaged with them. And then we did that public engagement, um, which you alluded to, which was allowing the people of BC and beyond to, to um, provide their perspective on how they felt about caribou recovery and specifically predator management. So we wrapped that up in um, in mid-November, and um, we moved to the stage where it was up, up to the regional managers to make those decisions as to whether we would carry forth with predator reduction based on all this information that we gathered and based on the results of all the consultation. And uh, yeah, at this point, we are we're, you know we've moved forward and we're we're active in in doing our our, our predator reduction this winter um, in hopes of sustaining what we've built already as far as the the caribou recovery success very cool now mike with something like that let's say for whatever reason the court case goes forward um or you know for whatever reason you guys have to stop what is what is the impacts and i know it's hard to you know prognosticate but from a you know your scientific background let's say we just stop predator management you know do you think we just reverse we go right back to where we were are we going to get this and are we is there an imminent threat to these populations where they're going to be extirpated imminently? Yeah. So I, you know, if we had to stop doing that wolf reduction today, uh, I think it wouldn't take long before we'd be right back where we were. Um, that habitat piece, you know, the protection and restoration of habitat, habitat coming back online, that's going to take a long time, decades. Um, so if we were to stop, reducing wolves right now and the habitat condition had not um, improved significantly, then it's yeah very likely that the wolf populations would rebound pretty quickly. We see that, you know, on an annual basis, even when we are reducing wolves. Um, so yeah, they're likely to respond pretty quickly. And I, I think we'd see the caribou starting to decline rapidly again. And we would, you know, we'd lose that, that progress that we've made. Um, the second part of your question, I mean, yeah, you know, the, the, some of these caribou herds are still on the brink as far as their overall population size. Doesn't take when you're dealing with small herds like this, it doesn't take much for them to reach the point of, of no return. And we've seen that happen um, mainly in the Kootenays in recent years uh, of herds actually becoming extirpated, and and um, we can't we can't go back from that. And even in the Peace region. Um, we've had one herd uh, become extirpated in the last 10 years uh, prior to some of our, our efforts like wolf reduction. 
Yeah, so it's pretty compelling. The evidence is certainly there in favor. So there might be a moral or an ethical issue around wolf management, but in terms of science, the science supports that if you want to preserve these caribou herds, that wolf reduction is short-term a very effective solution, it seems like. Yeah, it seems to be working. I mean, we're still gathering more data. So, we, you know, we've expanded our efforts into new herds in the past two to three years, um, still gathering data on those. Uh, you know, it's not a given that it's going to work for every herd. There's all kinds of factors involved. There could be other predators involved that could be holding a caribou herd back. There could be um, there could be health issues, for example. Um, so it's not a guarantee that the predator reduction will work, but where we have studied it, um, pretty thoroughly now it's it it has and uh we'll we continue to monitor that very closely every year to to really get a feel for what's happening out there like i can speak on the area around that i hunt and last couple of years you used to see uh what people will call packs of 50 60 wolves right but we know it's 10 15 but just tracks everywhere, up and down every road. You wouldn't see ungulate tracks. And now, the last couple of years, we're not seeing wolf tracks like we used to. We're seeing a couple. Yeah, we're a couple of coyotes. Coyotes have moved back in because the, their their main predator, the wolf, is gone. And uh, seeing moose everywhere, which is yeah. and they're they're healthy looking. They're not stressed out and ticked out. Uh, yeah, they're just, just we're seeing great calf recruitment from and on biologist sides. But I'm seeing one sometimes two calves with with a cow and they're not pressured it's it's great to see the the cast off effects of uh the wolf control and it's not just benefiting uh the caribou like as we know uh moose for some areas are down 70 percent i'd love to know what they're they're like now but like i said anecdotally just from boots on the ground it, it's working it's and yeah it's it's amazing to see yeah, no doubt. I mean, the, you know, it, it's not rocket science when you take away, you know, the primary factor of mortality for whether that's caribou or moose, uh, you're going to see a response. And then in some cases we see it pretty quickly. Like we've seen the adult survival of both caribou and moose in some of these areas increase substantially. And in most cases we see the, the calf numbers increase pretty rapidly as well. Now the calves are a little trickier. There's generally there's more predators that um, key in on those calves. So in some places, even where we're doing this intensive wolf reduction, we still have poor calf numbers in our caribou population. Um, so that points to maybe some other issues, whether that be predators like uh, wolverine, for example, or bears, or maybe there's something going on with the health of those caribou that they're not, um, you know, not calving as successfully as as they should be. So. Lots of different factors involved. Um, certainly, yeah, you know, caribou are of, you know, of the ungulates, they're a bit slower to respond. So if you're getting a strong response out of the caribou through wolf reduction, you can guarantee you're getting an even stronger response out of other ungulates like moose and deer and, and elk. And that's, and that's something, you know, we also need to consider and manage. And that's, uh, you know, managing the primary prey. That's a topic that comes up um, in BC as well. Yeah, right on, Mike. Um, so we talked about the survey, the engagement survey that was done. And like you said, um, during that engagement survey, Joe Pell was on the show and we were trying to, you know, get the word out for, for people to weigh in, just uh, let their opinions be heard. Uh, you said you have some findings from that and there actually was a, a 
an actual uh, paper published on that. Can you talk about what the results were and what you found from that uh, public engagement piece? Yeah, for sure. I can cover some of the high level stuff. Uh, so we um, produced uh, what we call a what we heard report from that public engagement, and that's uh, available online for anyone who's interested in diving deep into the, the stats of, of that survey. Um, so overall, uh, we had pretty good response. Uh, we had over 15,000 surveys filled out. Um, Excuse me, I believe the, the majority, around 86% of those survey users were British Columbia residents. Um, not a big surprise, but the majority of those big British Columbia residents came from the, the southern portion of our province, from the west coast and then the, the south coast. And um, so what we saw, sort of the overall finding, I guess, if you will, is that of those that responded, about 59% of respondents were not in favor of using predator reduction as a tool to recover caribou and about 37 percent were in support of predator reduction and then of course there'd be a few percentage points that were sitting on the fence um you know the it was interesting that you know the a lot of the survey users brought up plenty of fair points around um the habitat pieces you know that that bc needs to do better on protecting habitat and restoring habitat and those are all fair comments um yeah you guys hopefully had a chance to go through that survey and and see that sort of the in information that we provided what did you guys think of it uh actually to be honest i, I felt that it, it was parts of it was pretty darn confusing um yeah uh, there was there was specific uh you know that um you know, there was there was some good questions and there is no no doubt there for sure. Um, but there was parts where, you know, specific herds and, and focusing on and in all fairness, I did it three or four months ago. So I'm a little hazy on the details, but um, I find I found that pretty confusing, especially as a, a BC guy that's involved in conservation that knows a little bit about the province. I'm, I'm not knowledgeable by any stretch, but I would say if you compared me to the average Victorian, I probably know as much or more than the average Victorian. And I was lost in, in specific herds and, yeah. and we we're kind of supposed yeah. to be providing some input in it. And I felt my input there was useless, to be honest with you. I, I was looking on a map trying to figure out where these places were. Yeah, I, I felt it was too dialed down. Uh, what areas are you going to recreate in? What herd, as Kyle said, what herd do you feel is the most important? It, to, to me, looking at it from the outside, uh, 10,000 foot. Northwest important to you, Northeast important to you, Central important. You know what I mean? Just it was a little, mm -hmm. it was a little, I get where you guys were going with it. It was just a little too complex for the average person. And even for somebody like Kyle and I, who, who've been up to some, a lot of these areas, it was a little, oh, I heard of that herd, but where is it exactly on a map type thing? So. Right. Yeah. No, that's all, that's all fair feedback. Appreciate that. Uh, yeah, these these things are, are tough to put together, especially in a you know a short amount of time that we were we were kind of under short notice. Um, so yeah, we'll uh, definitely we've listened to quite a bit of feedback on this, and we'll uh, we'll be ready and we'll do better next time. I actually thought it was a generally good survey. Um, you know, eight minutes is what somebody, a friend of mine, timed it. He said it took him eight minutes. I think that's very reasonable. Um, obviously, there's enough. Um, you know, 15,000 surveys, that's actually a really good engagement, right? So I guess it tells you how emotive this issue is. And, and you know, I find it interesting that two thirds, almost two thirds of the people spoke against it. Um, so that that is, that's surprising to me that, 
because we shared it heavily in our circles. So um, I presume most hunters, when they look at it and they they think about caribou in the broader picture and they realize the the positive impacts of it, um, you know, you would I, I would expect most of the hunters would have been in favor of the uh, wolf reduction personally. Yeah, I think that was the case. I, um, I think we had about three thousand or thirty six. Um, respondents that identified themselves as hunters trappers um so that's yeah that's not bad i mean the the results there i it could have easily been skewed even farther the other direction um it, i'm surprised the survey didn't go a little bit more broad across north america or even international we've seen you know the conversation around wolf reduction um be a hot topic even beyond bc so um it was good to see that a lot of the respondents were British Columbia residents. Um, I think it was about 98% of respondents all agreed that caribou recovery is very important to them. So that's, that's half the battle right there. Um, so uh, people are engaged and interested and, and have uh, a wide variety of opinions on what, what we should be doing. Yeah, it's good. And, you know, kudos to, you know, the wildlife managers and, and the decision makers. And I don't know if you're part of that process, Mike, but, you know, you guys are staying the course on this, this piece, you know, you're looking at it holistically from, uh, you know, a, an ecosystem perspective, not an individual um, species perspective about managing the ecosystem. So staying the course on the reduction, even when we have, a, you know, it's, it's not a slam dunk in, in, against, you know, the wolf call it or whatever wolf reduction. Um, but it, it is, you know, definitely in favor of not doing it anymore. So I, I'm glad that the wildlife managers are are looking at it holistically and getting the opinion, considering it, but still, you know, pressing on with what they think is best for the ecosystem. And that's encouraging, I think. Yeah, I agree. And and you know, we're in a we're in a tough spot around caribou uh, recovery. Like the, you know, as far as short term measures go, there's not a lot else that we can do, and there's not a lot else that has been shown to be this successful. In reversing the trends of these these caribou populations, so we definitely uh, recognize that it's it's unpalatable to to many um, people that live in BC, and we don't envision this as a you know doing this in perpetuity. But um, for now, it, it is working, and we and it works even better when we couple it with other short term mm -hmm. recovery actions. Yeah, it's 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 a piece of a larger puzzle, as as you've said in no doubt you've seen me say on some of the groups like it takes 80 years 90 years 100 years to grow proper habitat for what these these caribou need and we we can't do that in our lifetime or likely even in our kids lifetimes we need to do something now that's actionable and measurable to to put a band-aid while we stitch the wound up so yep you're absolutely right steve yeah you got it so mike let's jump into now segue a bit off the um predator management piece and talk a little bit about uh so we talked about recreational management and uh you know and that was quite a controversial piece that came up recently um you know there was that engagement that you know uh, i think the premier was involved in he was in northern bc in in this public engagement piece and um I, I believe he was there i could be wrong on that but regardless there was kind of a, a town hall to discuss this and obviously industries affected on the um habitat piece but also just you know uh and it goes well beyond hunters, right? It's, you know, snowmobilers is a big one. They obviously are severely impacted by this. So um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and where we're at with, with that aspect of it? 
Sure. Yeah, a bit. I mean, so it's a little bit outside of my realm of expertise, but I've, you know, I'm sort of, I've been involved in the process a little bit at arm's arm's length. Um, my colleagues up here have put a tremendous amount of work into the the recreational um, management, and yeah, you're right. Uh, the latest sort of round of this was mainly geared towards snowmobile snowmobiling and snowmobile access into caribou. Uh, range and yeah again there's you know there was there's some been some closures um, I know my colleagues worked very hard in trying to find that balance and work worked as closely as they could with snowmobile groups around trying to maintain opportunity to get into the backcountry we know how much people um, cherish that and how passionate they are about that Again, it's it's all about these trade-offs uh, of trying to do best for caribou while still trying to maintain opportunity for for recreational users. Um, I think they found a, a fairly good balance, although I know I, I still know people are upset. Um, it, it's it's a super challenging realm to be working in, to be honest. Um, we'll never make decisions that make everyone happy, right? There's there's just no way whether we're talking about recreational access, whether we're talking about hunting regulations, um, you, you can just never make everyone happy. So um, it is what it is. That's that's where we're at with the snowmobile closures. It's a good step towards um, caribou recovery, but I, I recognize that it's uh, it's a touchy subject for those users that are affected by it. Well, the challenge moving forward with just wildlife in general is there's just going to be more non-consumptive users in the backcountry. Um, it's just, a, a, you know, it's, and COVID's exasperated that. Probably maybe not so much in the north. I could be wrong on that, but certainly in southern BC, we know that. Um, so it's kind of one of those things where, you know, as our, you know, our base of people, as our population grows, there's just going to be more pressure on backcountry and then obviously have a cumulative effect on wildlife. So it's, it's a tough one to be in and it's not going to get better anytime soon. Yeah, it really is, Kyle. It's... Uh... Yeah, I'm sort of glad that I don't have to dive too deep into that world, but uh, my colleagues sure do, and they, they put a ton of work in trying to tr to find that balance. Yeah, for sure. So, okay, let's move a little bit to the habitat piece, and then we'll move on to uh, some other subjects because we got a bunch to cover off today. But, uh, you know, what are the, some of the things short-term that we're working on on the habitat piece in, in the north that are helping caribou? What What's a short-term solution that – and we all know that this is a multi-generational uh, thing that we need to uh, tackle, but what's being done sort of on the short term or what can we do short term that's going to have the most important impact for, for caribou? Yeah, on the short term, the habitat stuff is is tricky, right? More, you know, usually when we think about getting the habitat back online, it's a long term conversation. But, there, you know, some of the rest, restoration that we're working on, uh, mainly along linear features, whether that's, you know, old roads or seismic lines, uh, some of that can have you know, potentially could be a shorter term effect, uh, especially what we call a functional restoration where we go onto linear features and either block them or mound them, or, you know, we cross hatch them with trees. Uh, the whole idea there is to make it more difficult for predators like wolves to move along those linear features. So in theory, that could have a shorter term um, effect, could come online, you know, relatively quickly. Um, but even the restoration is a long-term game and it's, there's a lot to do and it's very expensive and um, it's not that simple. I mean, a lot of these roadways, linear features, pipelines, et cetera, are still under tenure. You don't have access to actually go out and, 
and treat them. So uh, it's it's a big challenge, but again, there's a ton of work ongoing there. Um, you know, when we're taking strides towards protection, you know, like generally the province, we're getting pretty good at protecting core caribou habitat. The challenge though is still dealing with what we call the matrix habitat. And that's the habitat that's, you know, adjacent to core caribou habitat, but can still have an influence on caribou. You know, so in areas where we've created early cereal forests in the in those in that matrix habitat where we've seen explosions in the moose population, which in turn have led to explosions in the wolf populations, which of course then predate on the caribou. And that generally that's the challenge that we face in a lot of these herds. That's sort of the main driver of caribou declines across the province. So still right lots on. of work to be done on that. So when you involve industry in this now, right? Um, and, you know, a lot of these things you're talking about are industry related issues. How does that factor in? Like, how do we work with, you know, again, the logging industry, the mining industry, the all these different um, uh, industries that are impacted and people's livelihood? How how does how does that all come together? And, and how, what's the balancing piece on there? Are, are the are the a lot of these industries you're wanting to work with the, the ministry and, and find solutions or is it is it just kind of a constant battle where it's you know two groups that that have diametrically opposed objectives that are trying to figure things out right yeah no i, th I think there's some synergies there i again I, I don't work on it directly a ton myself but you know a lot of my colleagues do um i think there's common ground there for sure i mean a lot of the challenges i guess we have with industrial practices are sort of tied up in, in, um, in legislation you know whether that be the rules around free to grow um, uh, silviculture practices uh within cut blocks and things like that those those kind of those changes sort of need to be made at a higher level um, before we can start implementing some of those what we would call beneficial management practices that would um go a long way in supporting caribou recovery. Um, I don't know that we're there yet in all the industries, um, but certainly lots of conversations going on there. Um, and I, I'm feeling pretty confident we'll, we'll get to a better place there. But again, yeah, trade-offs. I mean, the, the province, you know, the, the economy is important. Jobs are important. Um, natural resource extraction is always going to be a big part of the province's economy. And um, we have to have to find that balance. Yeah, for sure. Well said. Cool. All right. Um, anything else to touch on habitat or um, predator prey reduction around caribou? Anything else we should know or can we skip to our next subject? Well, I think we can move along. Yeah, I uh, appreciate the dialogue there. Um, I mean, yeah, we could talk about predator reduction and the, you know, the impacts of wolves on caribou and other ungulates for hours here. So if you have any more yeah. questions, we can circle back later, but happy to move on. Cool. So, you know, through this fall has been a, a rough fall around uh, sheep harvest. And we've known there's a number of immature sheep that were um, harvested illegal sheep. And uh, I know you've been involved in those discussions, being in the Peace Region there, Mike. And, you know, we've kind of throughout the season, we've touched base with you and Bill Jacks and just some dialogue on what's going on around there. So, um, yeah, we're curious to know where we're at. We know there were some illegal sheep shot this year, quite a few more than normal. Um, so let's just jump into that and kind of get an overview of where we're at with, um, you know, illegal sheep harvest in 2021. Yeah, no, it, uh, it was a tough year and I'm, it's, it's good to be on here with you guys and, you know, maybe we can talk about some solutions or thoughts on how we can do better. But, 
yeah, so even despite working for the caribou program, I still sort of have my finger on the pulse of the sheep harvest management here in the Peace region. I um, I still do the determinations for legality on, on sheep. Um, and yeah, we had a lot of illegal sheep come through uh, this year. Uh, 18, in fact, I think is where we're sitting right now. So the 18 sheep that were deemed to be uh, short of full curl and under the age of eight. Um, so 18 compared to our typical average is about three to four a year. So this was a massive jump in illegal sheep. Is this um, just the Peace Region, Mike? Yeah, sorry, this is just for the Peace Region alone. I don't okay. have the numbers uh, for the Skeena um, on hand, so apologize for that. But yeah, I'm talking about no, no, the, the Peace Region, uh, where you know we do have the majority of stone sheep, and we do have higher hunting pressure than the Skeena. But yeah, that it was a really tough year uh, to see that. Um, the harvest was higher this year as well, and um, we were up to just over around 225 rams harvested in the peace region this year usually average around 200 so that's actually the highest the the harvest has been since 2012 which is not necessarily a bad thing but when you combine it with some of the underlying statistics around the ages it doesn't look great and i can break that down a bit for you guys so this year um 32 percent of the rams harvested were seven or under so about one in three rams that came in uh, were young, were seven or younger. So um, we usually average around 20%, seven or younger. So that was quite a, um, a bump up in the wrong direction. Um, and if I break that down a little farther, again, I'm not trying to pit uh, residents against non-residents in any sense here, but the resident harvest, uh, the performance there was not great. Uh, it was 42% of resident harvest was seven or younger, uh, which is the worst we've had on record um, that I can see going back 20, 20 years or so. Um, usually the average is around 27% for residents, um, seven or younger. So to go to 42% was a substantial jump in the wrong direction again this year. And uh, the non-resident harvest as well, um, that was 18% of non-resident harvest was seven or younger. Um, they usually average around 13%. So there was a, a, an increase there as well. Not as not to the extent that the resident harvest jumped though. So those are the numbers. Uh, curious to see what you guys think. Wow. Th those ones that uh, were, were seized for being illegal. Um, do you have any idea if the people took them thought they were uh, full curl or were they shot on what they thought was legal age the majority were age related issues yeah mo the majority of them hunters came in um, believing they had eight you know aged them at eight or older uh, there was a few that were uh, misjudged based on full curl as well but um, the majority were age related mistakes yep yeah. Okay. So what do I think? Not good. Uh, that's, it's brutal. Really, really sad um, that, yeah, that, that that's happening. Um, and yeah, I want to have more discussion on that, but there's this high harvest rate um, of these young rams and obviously it has implications. Obviously the regulations are stipulated for a reason biologically and scientifically. So can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of harvesting these mature rams and, and the impact that, you know, this, 
these illegal rams and these young ram harvests this year are going to have on herds? For sure, yeah. So uh, it's a really good point to bring up. So when we, you know, generally when we look at the harvest, it is sort of a representation of what's available in the population. So when when you see a good proportion of old rams in the harvest, that generally means they're available. Um, but when you see lots of young rams and fewer old rams in the harvest, that potentially means that there are fewer and fewer old mature rams um, in the population. And, and old rams, you know, they have importance for a few different reasons. Um, certainly for, you know, it's important to target old rams because these are the sheep that have, have already contributed to the, the breeding uh, population. Um, they've probably bred many times over the years. And as they age, they're more likely to die of natural causes anyhow. So harvesting those rams um, is, is less impactful to the, the population. Um, these bigger, older rams, they, they have some social um, responsibilities, if you will, like especially when it comes to the mating season. They tend to bring some structure into the breeding season um, where they're doing the majority of the breeding. They are fending off younger rams. Uh, they're better at breeding. They're, you know, they're breeding the ewes on time, which leads to lambing on time in the spring. Uh, if you remove some of those older rams, um, bigger rams, you, you may lose that sort of social structure. And what you can have is a lot of young, inexperienced rams uh, breeding, you know, for the first few, you know, maybe the first time. Um, and it can be a lot more chaotic. You know, they, they're fighting a lot more. They're chasing ewes a lot more. So there can be more stress on the rams themselves. There can be more stress on the ewes. Uh, it could lead to delayed breeding just with the chaos, and that can lead to delayed lambing. Um, and if a lamb is born late in the in the spring, it can have lower likelihood of surviving. Um, there's also some research that has shown that bigger, mature rams also produce bigger, healthier lambs. I think there's been some research on bighorn sheep that's uh, shown that. So it's another advantage of having big sheep around. And then, um, yeah, potentially you go, you know, if, if the harvest pressure and the selective harvest pressure is high enough, you could start to have some genetic implications on sheep. Um, and what I mean by that is if you're targeting um, or putting harvest pressure on those young, fast-growing rams, so those six and seven-year-old rams that reach legal status early on in life because they are fast-growing, over time, if you put enough pressure on those cohorts, you could see that uh, the genetics for that fast, long-growing horn growth start to diminish. And that's, that's been shown pretty conclusively in bighorn populations, but, um, and Dr. Uh, Festa Biancat has, has talked about that quite a bit recently. Um, and the same principles could apply to stone sheep if the harvest pressure was high enough. And there certainly are some areas in the region um, where harvest pressure does appear to be high. Um, you know, in some of the popular fly-in lakes or in some of these areas that have become popular because they've produced big rams over the years, uh, we are seeing pretty intensive hunting pressure in some of those areas. That's really good, uh, a really good understanding of it, um, Mike, and I, I always try and explain it. I never do a great job, and uh, I'm just going to record that and just share that with people when they ask why it's important to, to kill older rams. So, so I appreciate the uh, I guess the background on that, why it's so important. Um, just curio uh, out of curiosity, you talked about increased pressure. Um, what's 
what's our stone sheep pops like? Is it, would you say it's stable? Is it decreasing? Where are we at just holistically in the piece? Is it pretty much steady, stable? Yeah, I mean, as far as we know, so we don't get to inventory and count sheep probably as much as we'd like to. They're hard to count. They're very expensive um, species to count in these huge areas. So as best, you know, when we look at the harvest data, it suggests some stability you know, harvest has been pretty constant over time. Um, the age declining could potentially mean there's some issues with older rams, but you know, in the in the broad scheme of things, um, as long as there's rams present, the ewes will be getting bred and, and, and the sheep population will probably hang in there all right. Um, so based on what we've seen in the surveys that we have done, it seems like they're stable. Um, they may not be the numbers that it, they were maybe a few decades ago, but they seem to be hanging in there okay. Um, the lamb numbers that we've we've recorded in recent years suggest population stability. Um, we did a, a, a winter survey in one of the more popular stone sheep management units last year and counted, yeah, a really good number of, of sheep, you know, that would suggest not much has changed in the population size uh, since it was last surveyed about a decade ago. And there was still a decent proportion of what we call class four rams or like full girl and mature rams that had made it through the hunting season um, despite high harvest pressure. So um, things look okay on that front. Generally, as long as the, the habitat condition is okay and um, you know the, the predator populations aren't out of hand, the, the sheep seem to hold their own. And of course, we, don't, we have no reason to believe there's any um, disease issues in these northern stone sheep populations at this time either. So that's good news for now. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about, go back to the uh, illegal sheep that were harvested this year. I know you guys have been doing some forensic work on that, doing some uh, interviews with, uh, of course, all these sheep are CI'd. So you have a pretty good analysis of of you know how many there are and have you guys had an opportunity to to sort of do some forensic work and try and understand what happened and and why th these are happening yeah a little bit kyle like i you know when they come in to me say for an official determination sometimes the hunter's there sometimes they're not so i get to have a bit of a an initial conversation you know I'll often ask well like what did you see or what, what were you shooting it based off and those kind of things but really my role is just to make that determination and then we we hand it over to the conservation officer service to take it from there i think they have you know the more detailed conversations about exactly what happened um so in that sense i don't I don't often know the full story, right? But I can I can certainly tell you that um, there was a mix this year of, of really new novice hunters that had made some mistakes. There was some experienced hunters that made mistakes this year as well. And um, I don't know exactly how to explain why that happened at a higher rate this year. Um, but again, generally it came down to maybe some overconfidence in the ability to age sheep in under field conditions which is very challenging yeah I, I i can attest to that i've i've not shot dozens of sheep for that very reason which you know very may very well have been legal but uh so on that subject what what's part so i, I guess first of all what's going to happen you know if this is a pervasive issue where does this go what is the ministry is obviously going to react because this is unacceptable the high harvest rate of immature rams so what's a possible outcome around this if 
you know, if this was to happen again this this coming year, um, what might be a possible outcome or, or what? And I know you, you know, that's that's a complex process, but what could be an outcome of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to even speculate much and I don't want to raise alarms. I think I think it's really important um, that this message gets out there and, and you guys do a great job of, of spreading the message. And I'd like to think that this is a problem that could be fixed within and, and by within, I mean within the sheep hunting community um, before we have to go to the regulatory, um, you know, options. Uh, I think I think if, if, if a sheep hunters really bear down here, um, this can be solved from within. Um, so, I mean, there's there's a multitude of different ways you could try to regulate these sort of problems. All would have their pros and cons. All would, you know, many of the options would be unpalatable to most hunters. Um, I, I hope we don't have to go down that road. Um, I, I, I really do have faith that this is something that can be fixed simply just by making better decisions on the mountain. Um, and if we don't get down there, then, then, you know, if we don't get to that point, then maybe you know, we have to start looking at regulation, but we really, um, we really value that opportunity for, for sheep hunters to be able to hunt over in a general open season um, every year, if they choose to, that's a great opportunity and we don't want to have to take that away. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's, it's frustrating to me having been out on the landscape so many times and seeing so many rams that were you know, so close, right? You know, you're, you're so close and you just don't go there. And, uh, you know, when we, we see numbers like this, it's, it's really, really sad, um, to see. So, um, you know, obviously the education component is so critical, right? So how can we do a better job of that? I like internally, the society's working on, we've had a little bit of horn aging stuff, but even mm. some of the stuff we had on the website, there was some conjecture and, uh, some people had some issues with some of the stuff and, you know, of course, we're not experts. So, you know, we, we have access to the Mike Bridgers of the world and, and experts that do know their stuff. So we're, you know, getting that information out there and making sure it's crystal clear and making sure we're perfect on that as well is so important. So, you know, what can we do uh, better? How can we do a better job of educating hunters so that they can be make better decisions in the field? Yeah, well, here's my take on it. I, the education piece, I think, is critical educating hunters to be aware of age and aware of the implications they like, like we just talked about the importance of having old rams and, and maybe passing on younger rams um, so educating hunters on how to recognize age um, versus young you know young rams i think is really important and and getting to that point where they're okay with walking away from younger rams I think is really critical I guess my one concern is that we put too much emphasis on trying to educate hunters on how to count annuli as a means of making a decision in the field you know I I, I don't want to have hunters feeling overconfident I guess if you will because they've gone through a, you know uh, on a website and they've, they've aged these sheep you know based on slides on a powerpoint presentation it's not the same as trying to do it out in the field. You guys know that. Um, so I don't want to put too much emphasis on, on, on teaching hunters how to age to the point where they're trying to differentiate between a seven and an eight-year-old ram in the field. It's just too risky. We've seen time and time again that the vast majority of hunters, uh, especially under field conditions, are struggling with this. Um, and that, I mean, that's why it says in the regulations, you know, don't shoot 
based off of annuli, even though that is a legal means of doing it. There is some, there's inherent risks in doing it. And I mean, I'll give you an example. Like I, I had the, the luxury of working up in the Northwest Territories, guiding doll sheep hunts. And, you know, you'd see a lifetime worth of rams up there, you know, compared to a stone in one season up there, you probably get a lifetime worth of rams, you know, if you compare that to stone sheep hunting, get to see a ton, get to age a ton, um, get lots of rams in hand. And then, you know, in my job now, I get to see a lot of rams come through, all the photos, all the rams that come to me in hand. Even even after that, that like I, when I go hunting in the field, I still encounter rams that I cannot conclusively get an age on in the field through a spotting scope. So for, for new or, you know, relatively new hunters to come into the field and, and think that, that they can make that call with 100% certainty, I just, it doesn't seem, it's just not working right now. Yeah, me as a new sheep hunter, there's no bloody way. I've take, I've done all these things online and I've chatted with bios and I'm confident doing it online, but there's no bloody way I would do it in the field. And I've told Kyle, you know what, if I'm shooting my first sheep, it has to be a double twister or you're with me going, yes, that is legal. I need somebody experienced that has just months and months of worth of field judging. It's because there's so many things in, in, in play. And number one is your nerves, right? You're, oh, it, it's hard enough to count points on a, on a deer. And I, at 200, 300, 400 yards through a spotting scope, trying to count annuli, no thanks. No bloody way. Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, and every ram's different. Like in some horns, the annuli show up beautifully. And some, I mean, they're extremely difficult to, to see. And then you throw some, some false rings in the mix and you throw heat waves into your spotting scope or a bit of wind. I mean, there's just a multitude of factors. I, you know, I, I'm not taking away from the ability of people to do it certainly they can and and we do like to have that opportunity to shoot old rams that aren't full curl um but you just have to be so careful and you have we have to get more willing to walk away from from sheep so that's a, a great point mike that you make there the walk away thing so you're an experienced sheep hunter you're a guide you're a biologist you've dealt with this you know give us kind of your you know you're a new sheep hunter you're out in the field we know guys are making mistakes um, give us your, you know, tips to, to making sure you don't, you know, what's important. And, and, you know, there's some stuff at the top of mind for me, but in your world, um, you know, obviously making sure and full curl. Yeah, that's that clear. Uh, but what else can, what, what are some of the things that a new sheep hunter should be doing that maybe they didn't, or they aren't that you think is really important? Uh, I mean, off the top, I, I think it's really important to go into the hunt with no, don't put any pressure on yourself. To succeed i don't know what it is if it if it's a social media thing but this day and age it seems like hunters are putting so much pressure on themselves to come back with a sheep and that right away i think is the wrong mentality to go into a hunt with just go in and have fun and hope to see some rams and and be totally content with coming home empty-handed i think is important um but as far as actually making that call you know the good optics are definitely important get close you know, there's no reason with a little extra work that you can't get close to these sheep. Um, they don't have to be shot from 700 yards away. You know, get close to your time. I think it's really important if you can go with a mentor um, who can provide some guidance and some expertise. 
um, it seems this day and age that there's a, like, sheep hunting's definitely gotten popular. It's gotten trendy. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of new hunters that maybe even sort of skipping the, you know, the general steps in hunting progression where you start hunting grouse and deer and moose and then kind of make your way up to the mountain hunts. It seems like there's quite a few hunters that are jumping straight into sheep hunting and just haven't got that that level of patience or, or experience yet. And that may be leading to some of these issues as well. Um, yeah, as far as, again, as far as being in the field, there's lots of clues to look for. I mean, when I look at a ram, and if I see annuli that at the top of the horn that are several inches apart, I don't even, I'm not even... I'm not even giving that ram a second look as far as trying to make it legal. It's just not, it's not what we're looking for. It's not worth trying to convince oneself that it's legal. Um, I'm looking for stacked annuli in the top of the horn, uh, you know, looking for those double digit, you know, 10 year old rams. Um, so yeah, stop trying to convince yourself that this, you know, this young ram might have another annuli somewhere. Um, just take the pressure off yourself. Yeah, well, those are all great, uh, great pieces for sure. And um, sage advice, you know, I personally, I think um, with me and, uh, you know, the guy, my hunting partner, Mike, he, he's been hunting sheep for 25 years. And uh, there's been so many rams that we've let walk away. And uh, kind of the rule of thumb that we use is we both have to age them. At, and we always give an extra year. So, you know, we're always looking for full curl anyway. But if we're looking at anything that isn't, um, we're not going to shoot anything that's not nine or more. And we both agree that they're nine because if they're at, you know, so it's just that if there's any doubt, there is no doubt. We just have to walk away. Right. So. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Give yourself some wiggle room, you know, nine yeah. annuli, 10 annuli, you know, you, you just got to be super safe. I, I can't imagine a worse feeling than, than making that mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know what I'd love to do. And you know, one thing that, I've talked about and, and advocating for is a mandatory course for, you know, sheep hunters, just, just the basics to understand it. It's such a sensitive um, species that over harvest or illegal harvest is going to have an impact on the, on it. Um, and it's tough to do like it, you know, with a deer. Yeah. Like it needs four points. It's, it's pretty cut and dry and yeah, it gets down to maybe that one inch part in there isn't an, you know, it's not linear there either, but with sheep, it's just so difficult. And, you know, even uh, there's been so many times, and again, you know, you talked about it, there's experienced guys that guides that make mistakes, right? They've, or, you know, they, they're not sure and they have to walk away because uh, it's, yeah. So it's, it's such a tough thing, but uh, I'd love to see more education and, you know, I'd love to get you down here this summer and do a course for us. Um, love to, cause I honestly, I think that, you know, we, right now we need to do more. We need to offer more and in, in terms of education and, having, you know, your guys like yourself in there doing these courses. And we've missed that these last two years. We've had no shows. So, you know, usually we'd have, um, you know, Mr. Walker or Mr. Jax or yourself down at these shows talking to people about horn aging, and we haven't been able to do that. So, yeah, we got to do a better job, I think, on that end of things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, developing, uh, you know, sorry, developing these educational pieces, yeah, it's going to be really key, I think, moving forward. And I think that will keep us from having to go down the road of, of, of changing regulations. I mean, to be able to hunt stone sheep over the counter, general open season is a phenomenal privilege. Um, and we need to really 
treat it with respect. I mean, it's the same kind of seasons that you'd have for white-tailed deer, but we need to recognize that sheep are not, you know, they're not white-tailed deer. Um, we need to and, and treat treat them accordingly. You know, have a bit of respect for these sheep. Um, otherwise, we may find ourselves in a position where we have to make some some regulatory changes. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I, hunting stone sheep over the counter is a phenomenal privilege. Wow, what, I, what more can you say about that? It, it truly is, and, and we have to treat it as such for sure. Uh, okay, anything else on the illegal sheep harvest or peace harvest around stone sheep uh, that we want to touch on, or are we good there? Well, I think that covers my uh, my two cents on it. Yeah, I, ho I hope it's not sounding like I'm, I'm preaching or standing on a podium here. I'm just trying to get that message across and uh, really hoping that we'll uh, we'll have a better year next year. Absolutely. I think we as sheep hunters have to do a better job. And I think that message, you know, I was writing down quotes. I don't do this normally on a podcast, but I was writing down quotes. And um, these are so important to some of the things you said here and really impactful. And I think we need to do a better job of communicating that and doing a better job as sheep hunters to make sure that we're looking after the resource better than we have. Yeah, well, quickly, I'll ask you, like, what do you guys think? Like, what that? What do you think was the cause of this this year that we had? <laughs> to be blunt, you nailed it. Social media, right? There's there's been a lot of posts that I've seen from experienced sheep hunters and experienced writers and all that, and they're all saying the same thing that there's there's people put pressure on themselves. They go out and they they spend sheep hunting's not not cheap, as you know, right? Some people can walk around the mountains with a ten thousand dollar rifle, um, and uh, thousands and thousands of dollars of gear. They they put this this weight on their back and they, they feel that if they come back empty-handed there's they're 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 less of a person they're less of a hunter so i don't know that's that's my first thoughts but i i, I wish we could put a a definite uh cause on it we could because then you can address it yeah i you know I think you've articulated it really well, Mike and, and Steve, you backed them up there and you touched on all those points. I, I, there's nothing I don't agree with there. I just think the one thing we have to treat these animals with the reverence they deserve. They're such a iconic, unique and sensitive species. Um, and we just have to treat them as such. And when we, you know, we cannot take them for granted and, and uh, we just have to be more deliberate in what we're doing and, and think about it. And I think having that mentorship piece is really important. You know, um, I'm not trying to pretend that because we didn't have a show, you know, these young sheep are dying, but, you know, having that mentorship and having looking up to people like, like yourself and, and how important this is and, and just getting that mindset that we cannot screw around with sheep, that we have to treat them with a, a sensitivity that they deserve. So, yeah, I, I don't have a good answer, but I think you pretty much nailed it in all the, the points you raised, Mike. So. Cool. Well, we have to do better, right? Yep. And I, I, I have faith in the community. I mean, it's, it was such a hot topic um, all through the season. Um, the awareness is definitely there, I feel. So I, I, I sense we'll have a better year coming up. And uh, yeah, it, honestly, it was tough. It's probably one of the hardest or maybe one of the worst parts of this job is having to take these rams away. And by the end of the year, you know, I think we had maybe 14 or something that came right through our office that, you know, my colleague and I had to make assessments on. And it was getting really tough to see that many sheep coming in. And uh, I hope that 
never happens to that extent again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Um, I think that uh, we've we've covered that in its uh, full detail. Uh, anything else you want to touch on, Mike, in terms of uh, management issues in BC around uh, the work that you're doing or anything we should be uh, have front of mind for hunters in BC? Well, there's no shortage of hot topics these days. I think we've covered a few uh, pretty well today. Um, I, I just want to thank you guys for having me on and uh, uh, thank you guys for the work you're doing. The podcast is great. I've learned a lot from uh, a lot of the guests you've had on and and then the Wild Sheep Society as a whole is is, is a great organization, very progressive, uh, seem to be really leading the way um, for wildlife work uh, in the province. And I've been lucky enough to work on a few wild sheep uh, funded projects and, and we have a few going on in this region that are being fully delivered by Wild Sheep Society. And um, speaking on behalf of you know all my provincial colleagues, we definitely appreciate the, the help and, and the great work you guys uh, are doing as an organization. So keep it up. Well, thank you, sir. And and honestly, uh, you know, there's some pillars in our community that, you know, are, are really important. And, and definitely you're one of them, Mike. You've, you've always been, uh, you know, front and center in and from our first cheap show, even, you know, in a, in a non-official capacity, I just remember, you know, there was this reverence for the work that you're doing and have continued to do so. And we're just really grateful and and really appreciate when you come to us and say, hey, guys, you know, we need to look at this. We need to do a better job. And, you know, we, we are out there trying to do the best we can. But, you know, like you said, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. So thank you for all you do. And just really appreciate you taking time to, to speak with us today. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could do even more. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're doing doing our best out here for sure. So, yeah, thanks again for having me on. Appreciate it.